Well, you can go ahead and turn over in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, uh, because today we're finishing up this letter. It's been the last several months for us. Uh, it's been quite the marathon. It's a letter that is about just about everything in the human experience. Uh, it's got a little bit of everything for everybody. It's a letter that's about fame. It's about money. It's about sex. It's about politics. It's about food. It's about all the things that sort of give structure and rhythm to all of our lives. And ultimately, it's a letter about selfishness and how our love for ourselves gets filtered through all these other things that we love. And ultimately, it's been a letter in which Paul has again and again, issue by issue, been calling the people he was writing to, 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 to pull their heads out of their own lives, to see what has been done for them by Jesus at the cross, and then to love each other through what Jesus has done for them. It's been a great practical study because of how nitty-gritty the issues are. I mean, there are real-life issues that haven't gone anywhere in 2,000 years. The question is how to bring this to a head. Now, how do you summarize a series that's taken us several months to get through in one week? I think Paul's helped us out with 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now, in one sense, 1 Corinthians 16 is about a whole host of issues that if we tried to nail them down or sort of run them down one by one, uh, we wouldn't be able to do it effectively. It's about, it's, it's the kind of chapter that you write when email isn't an option for you. When there's no texting, when letters take months to get anywhere, and when off, often they don't make it anyway. It's the kind of chapter that you write when, when letter writing is a really big deal. And you need to make it all count. So this last letter, this last chapter to his letter talks about uh, updates on this particular collection that they were taking for some people who were in need in Jerusalem. It talks about his plans to visit them when he can, when he's hoping to visit, how long he's hoping to stay. It talks about Timothy, his friend and partner in ministry that he's sending to them and asks them to take care of Timothy when he gets there. He talks about some men who are in their community that they know and that he's saying, you should elevate these guys, you should honor them, they're good leaders for you, trust them. He talks, about, um, he talks about greetings and people that he's with who want to greet them and how they should be greeting each other and in the middle of all this personal information. Right smack in the middle of the chapter. He gives him a simple encouragement that summarizes the point of the whole letter. Right in the middle of it, kind of drop down in the midst of all of these very personal greetings and instructions. Verse 14 captures what he's going for in the whole letter. Let all that you do be done in love. Let all that you do be done in love. That's it. There's the point. So I thought the best way for us to sort of put an end to our series in 1 Corinthians together would be to unpack that line in light of all the things we've studied. So what we're going to do this morning is a sort of tour de force. We're going to be flipping around a good bit, sort of remember back some things we've, we've seen. If you're here visiting with us for the first time, you're going to get a little bit of a taste, maybe more of a taste than you want, maybe sort of a drinking from the fire hydrant taste, but you're going to get a taste of what this series has been like, the sorts of themes that have come up in this letter over and over again. And we're going to do it all through the grid of verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. On the surface, that means how you relate to each other should always be guided not by what you're going to get out of each other, but by what you can give to each other, by love, by what's best for the other. But we're going to go deeper than that because one of the things Paul's shown us over and over again is that to love each other like that, especially when we're all sort of messed up and in each other's business, 
The only way to have power to love like that is if you also love who you are in Christ. And if you have a love for what Jesus has done for you, what he's promised you through his life and death and resurrection, then you can have the power to love each other when it's hard. And we saw near the end that we have to have a love for the future that God has promised us. Not just what Christ has done, but we're also driven to love each other well, to give this life away for each other because we love the promises that he's made about where we're headed, about the fact that Christ is risen and he's coming for us to give us bodies that won't ever die. And so we're free to give this life away. What do we have to lose? So we're going to talk about loving each other well. We're going to talk about loving each other well because we love what we have in Jesus. And we're going to talk about loving each other well because we love what's been promised to us through Jesus' resurrection, what God has in store for us that gives us the power to give this life away. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, I want to read all of chapter 16. I feel like we at least, at least owe this chapter a reading of all the, the personal information and the greetings. So we're going to do that together now. And I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from this chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 to 24. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I'll send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door of Effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but... It was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men and be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, Write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. 
So the main thread that ties this letter together, the thread that runs all through the whole thing, is Paul's concern that they learn to love one another. I mentioned earlier, it's a letter that's just about just about everything, right? And it's got all the things that human life includes. Food and sex and politics and money and reputation and status. And underlying it all, it has the essence of human condition. It has selfishness. It has a self-centeredness that goes for all these things for all the wrong reasons. And Paul, really the whole letter is one after another issue where he hammers them on this question. On their single-minded devotion to themselves. They basically lacked concern for others. That's the way to summarize it, I guess. They only thought of what was best for themselves. And really, it's, it's what call, Paul calls the human way. In chapter 3, there's just one section in chapter 3 that we looked at a couple months ago, where Paul is talking to them about how he came to them, not able to speak to them as if they were uh, you know, mature Christians, but having to speak to them in sort of basic milk level kind of words and teachings because he says you're basically behaving in the human way, in a merely human way. And what he meant by that, he says, when, he says when, you're, when you're giving yourselves over to jealousy and strife, when you're sort of always at each other, struggling with each, with each other, you're being merely human. That's what he says. What we took from that, and really what, what hangs over this whole letter is that in all of us, the essence of our, of our problem is that we have turned in on ourselves. So we make everything about us. We interact with each other, really, for what we're going to get out of it. And we experience each other as almost like, if you think about it in the terms of a good book or a movie or something, like we're the sort of the, the protagonist or the hero in all of our own stories. And others interact with us only insofar as they either help or make things harder as resources for us or as threats to us and what we want to get out of it. People don't have their own identity that we connect with, that we identify with. They are, they are means to our ends or threats to what we want to accomplish. And one after another, Paul gives examples of how this this sort of mindset, this merely human way was affecting their community. They were trying to advance themselves. They were committed to protecting what's theirs and they were taking every chance they had to highlight the ways they were better than each other. There's lots of examples we could point to. I'm just going to rifle off a few of them. We won't even look at them closely. But just just remember back, if you've been with us for this study, remember back to chapter 1 where they thought that following Jesus was about looking wise, like picking out one or another teacher about Jesus as a way of showing their own good taste, you know, in the way that you might pick out a set of clothes or pick out a way to decorate your house or, I don't know, pick out what kind of, what kind of music that you like as a way of making a statement about your good taste. They identified with apostles and teachers not because of how clear Jesus came through but because they thought this guy would make them look good, right? Paul pointed to their sexual looseness to their, their lives lived only for their own pleasure in chapter 5 and 6. He even pointed out how in, in their spiritual gifts, they were trying to rank them. Like all these things that the Spirit gives to them so that their community can be, can be whole and powerful and, and transformed. All these things that come as gifts from the Spirit to them, they were using as sort of creating, to, to sort of create a pecking order in their community. To, to, for sort of one-upmanship where I've got 
tongues, which makes me better than you because all you have is prophecy and all that guy over there has maybe is, I don't know, gifts of healing or administration. But I'm the tongue speaker, right? Everything that, even, even in the church, was about status for them. He pointed out how they, they were so committed to protect what was theirs, how they were taking each other to court over even minor offenses, how they were insisting on their right to eat food in the temple, even when it might make somebody else trip up and fall back into idolatry. They don't care because it's my right to eat food wherever I want to. And he pointed out how even at the celebration of communion, chapter 11, even at the celebration of communion, what they were about was showing who had what was about clarifying the haves and distinguishing them from the have-nots. The rich were bringing their food, sort of potluck style, eating it in the special room set aside from those who didn't have food, and the poor were going hungry. Basically, they had too much of Corinth in them. We talked about the fact that this city was a lot like America today, as much like, as, much like America as any ancient city could have been, because it was a kind of a new city, and there was a lot of power up for grabs. It was full of new money. things were in flux. It was possible to climb a ladder. Not everything was set in stone. And so they were all about it. They were playing the same game that everybody else was playing. And the church was not in the world and not of the world. They were fully of the world. Which is to say they were fully of themselves. Now, Now, here's the thing. Some of these examples, I think, I think lend themselves to us being really critical of the church in Corinth and assure ourselves that we're not guilty of what they were guilty of because, you know, our church isn't home to the rich and powerful. No offense, guys, but you're not rich and powerful. Nobody's coming here to network, right? In their hope to make partner at their law firm or whatever. That's just not who we are. Maybe that's even what attracted you to our church. I don't know. But here's the thing. Remember what Paul says in chapter 3. This isn't what the rich and the powerful do. This is the merely human way. This is what all of us do. It's in us. So it's here in us at Trinity. It's in you. And it shows itself every time we crave recognition for how we serve our church. Every time we crave recognition for what we can offer. Every time we resent not being fully utilized in the way we want it to be. It shows itself when we reduce other people to what they've done against us. When we define them by their wrongs of us rather than trying to understand them. Rather than trying to forgive them. It shows itself when we use our words more to sound smart or insightful than to encourage those that we're speaking to. It shows itself when we, when we evaluate friendships, potential friendships, in light of how well they're going to meet our needs, in light of how they fit our status, in light of whether this person is like me, easy to get along with, in light of whether this person is someone I want to be like and so want to attach to. Against all this natural human garbage, Against this essence of the human condition, Paul is pushing back. He's throwing his hands up and he's saying, no, not among you. You will not be this way. And and what he calls them to over and over again through this letter, 
to fight against the ugliness of the human way, he calls them to love. He calls them to rise above their obsession with themselves, to identify not against each other, I know who I am because I'm not like you, but to identify with each other. He calls them in 1 Corinthians 12, one of my favorite examples of this, to see each other as part of the same body. And the body needs all of its members. Even if they don't look like they have that much to offer, they do. That sometimes the ones who look like they have least to offer are the ones who have the most to offer. That one way or the other, you can't do without each other. He builds in 1 Corinthians 12 to that beautiful passage on just like a body, when one member suffers, all of them suffer. Because they're identified together. Your sorrows are mine. When one member rejoices, all of them rejoices. You don't resent the fact that this person got some promotion you wish you had gotten. You rejoice with them. Because they are you, in a sense. You're identified as one body. He builds ultimately to 1 Corinthians 13. It's the most beautiful passage on love anywhere in the scriptures. And it's written to this messed up church. This self-obsessed church. And he's calling them to love with a love that's patient and kind, a love that keeps no record of wrongs, a love that, apart from from it, nothing else really matters. Because for all their obsession over where where they ranked in their society, over what kind of gifts they had and how important they were relative to other gifts, for all of that, without love, they had nothing. They're empty gongs. They're clanging cymbals. They're worse than if they said nothing at all. Because only love can redeem Only love can redeem and make useful, make life-giving the kinds of things all of us bring to the table in our God-given uniqueness. Only love can take us from performing as a way to establish ourselves and into giving ourselves away because we want what's best for the body. And that's the kind of love that we're called to by this letter over and over again. Basically, it's what he means in verse 14. Let everything you do be done in love. So the way for us as a church and as individuals in our church to sort of take this letter and work it into the rhythms of our life is to build some basic diagnostic questions into our instincts. I think what we're supposed to ask ourselves every time, every time we're confronted with a problem, with an opportunity, with a chance for self-evaluation in our relationships to each other, What we're asking of each other, of ourselves as we relate to each other, is what does love look like in this situation? What does look like what does love look like when I have discretionary income? What does love look like when I have some time that I could give to one of a range of options? How does love factor into what I choose to give my time to? What does love look like when I'm hurt by someone? What does it look like when I'm disappointed by the way that I've been treated? What does love look like when I recognize something that isn't the way it should be in our community? These are the questions we want to, we want to make instincts for us. We want to, through habit, through practice, through calling each other back to them, We want to change what our natural is when we encounter something that isn't what it should be. From obsession about ourselves and whether we're getting all we think we deserve to a a desire to give ourselves away to people who need us. That's what this letter calls us to. Let everything you do be done in love. Now, here's the question. Where in the world do we find the power to love like this? 
to love people like this. Paul was writing to this church that was messed up. I mean, these people, nobody would want to be around guys like this, the ones that he was writing to. And he's telling them to love each other. In other words, don't just get over your own self-obsession, but you need to love someone who's self-obsessed, right? You need to love the people who aren't loving you well. So where in the world do you find power to pull that off? Paul's answer to this question, the sort of how this love is possible, is just as consistent as his call to love each other, to get beyond self-obsession into love. Same thing. He keeps calling them back to one, one time after the other. He's always going back to the cross. This letter is all about the cross. This sort of love for each other only comes when we love what's ours in Jesus when we love what's been promised to us, when we see what he did on the cross, when we see it as for us, and when we so love it, when our hearts are captured by it, that we just feel and act differently. Let me just point you to a couple examples. This came up so many times. There's no way we can catalog all of them. It's all through the letter. Just read it again this afternoon, you'll see. But it comes up from the very beginning. You know, in the first chapter, he's hammering on them for all of their division how they were trying to establish themselves by picking someone who was a better teacher than, than that guy's teacher. I'm with Paul, I'm with Apollos, I'm with Cephas. What Paul challenges them with first in verse 13 of chapter one, what, where he challenges them first in that verse is on the implication of the fact that they were identifying themselves with, with something other than the cross. He says, flip over there, this one's worth reading, it's worth tracking here with me. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. After saying, after challenging them for saying, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, he says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? It's a question that has an obvious answer. No, Christ wasn't divided. But you're divided. And if you're divided, then that means that your identity is based on something other than Jesus. That means your identity is based on something that wasn't crucified for you, on something that cannot have been raised from the dead for you. And therefore, your identity is based on something that cannot save you from death. And if your identity is there, if that's what you show by your division from each other, then you've got to look to Jesus or you'll have nothing. That's why Paul says in, verse, in, in verses one to five of chapter two that when he came to them, he didn't come trying to win followers for himself. He wasn't trying to impress them in the way that he taught by his rhetorical power or whatever, by how great his jokes were. He was about giving them Jesus. Chapter two begins this amazing section on Paul's philosophy of ministry. He says, I didn't come proclaiming to you, this is verse one of chapter two, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. It wasn't about me. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. I was a reason for you not to believe. If you had really only believed based on what you were seeing in me, you wouldn't have followed Jesus. Paul doesn't want to talk about anything but Christ because his heart is captured by the cross and he wants to bring everything back around to that. It all goes back to Jesus for him. He's like that annoying new couple, right? You know, you know the ones I'm talking about 
who, who just find a way to name drop about the new person they're with. No matter, what the situ- no matter what the topic is, it always sort of comes back around to this new person that they're infatuated with. That's Paul. He's infatuated with Christ. And everything is about that for him. He doesn't want to get in the way. He doesn't want anything else to get in the way. Because his identity has shifted. And the most important thing, to, don't miss this, this is the key. The most important thing to Paul, more important than whether people notice him or admire him, more important than whether he's successful at the game that everybody else is playing, more important than whether he's known for his wealth or his talent or for being a great guy, more important than any of that is his attachment to Jesus and to who he is in Christ. One of the things I'm taking away from this series, one of the nuggets is that section in chapter 4 where Paul presents himself as an example to them. If you want to live as if Jesus really does define you, what he's done for you defines who you are, then you can live like me in this sense. Look over to chapter 4. He says, verse 3 of chapter 4, With me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In other words... I'm not trying to impress you. What you think about me doesn't define my happiness or my sadness. It doesn't, it, doesn't, uh, it doesn't establish me, give me significance or any sense of personal value. In fact, he says, I don't even judge myself. Doesn't care what they think about him. He's not obsessed with what he thinks about him. So what does matter to Paul? Verse 4 is the answer. I'm not aware of anything against myself, he says, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Just because I don't know I haven't done anything wrong, that's not what makes me sleep well at night. Here's what matters to me. It is the Lord who judges me. This is a loaded term for Paul. It's the, Paul that he, it's the, the term that Paul uses in all, a lot of his other letters when he's talking about how God sees us through Jesus. The term that, that often... Uh, we often talk about justification. The fact that because of Jesus, when God looks at us, he sees Christ, he sees what Christ has done, and he says, you are what you should be. You are acquitted of all wrong in my sight. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And he knows, he doesn't have to worry about what other people think of him, and he doesn't even have to worry about what he thinks of himself. He's freed up from that kind of obsession that most of us are trapped in because he trusts that God has already told him who he is and that God looks at him and sees Jesus. And so he's freed up for what Tim Keller calls self-forgetfulness. Self-forgetfulness. Gospel humility, Keller writes, is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things with myself, True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with me. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. Paul cares only about what's his in Christ. And that's what he calls them to. One of the clearest examples is in chapter 6. Chapter 6 is where he hammers them for taking each other to court to resolve disputes that they were having among themselves. He doesn't say what they were, but it's, it's clear they're minor. It's not a criminal thing. It's not like, you know, someone you know, assaulted someone in your family and you want to take them to court. You know, that, that would be okay. It's minor stuff, civil stuff. 
And they're taking each other to court to get what's theirs. They're just locked in on getting what they deserve. And what Paul tells them in chapter 6 is that you should rather be defrauded. Why not rather be wronged than do this to each other? And what he says to them to convince them this is the way it should be is he takes them back to who they were. He says the kingdom of God doesn't belong to, the pe- to people like you. He lists off this whole list of, of sins that they had been guilty of. He says such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were made new through Jesus. So God, in other words, didn't treat you in the way you deserve to be treated. What are you doing taking each other to court to get what's yours? And the point is, they haven't internalized the message of the cross. And so this letter is written to them to encourage them to love each other by loving who they are in Jesus. Because it's only when they start to get captured by what has been done for them that they'll have the power to love each other when it's hard. To love each other when, when you've been wronged. This is the kind of love that makes 1 Corinthians 13 possible. Love that's patient and kind, that bears no record of wrongs, that's resilient. Love that doesn't end. Love that hopes all things, even of people who have hurt you over and over. Love that believes all things. And it's only the Spirit's power that can change us from the natural or merely human people that we are into people who love what God has promised us in the gospel. One of my favorite sections we've looked at was chapter 3. Right after the section where he's talking about, or excuse me, chapter 2, right before the section where he's challenging them for behaving in a merely human way or a natural way, he talks about the difference between the spiritual man and the natural man. And that the promises of God, the gospel, the, 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 the truth about what Christ has done for us, the natural man doesn't want that. The natural man wants to save himself. He wants the credit for whatever it is that he accomplishes. He doesn't want a gospel that says Jesus has done everything because you couldn't do it for yourself. But the Spirit, by the Spirit of God, these promises come to taste different to us. When the Spirit changes what we love, we hear these promises not as taking away the credit that we want for ourselves, but as giving us something we don't deserve and could never earn. And it becomes what we love and how we love each other, only by the Spirit's power. So a takeaway, another takeaway for us, I think, is the way we pray for ourselves and for our church is we pray that God's Spirit would help us to taste the beauty of His promises to us in Christ. Because the only way we're going to hold this thing together is if His Spirit captures our hearts with the truth of the gospel. That's how I'm going to be praying coming out of this series. Here's the last thing. We've, we've said that, that the, the letter is written to convince them to love each other better than they were. To let everything be done in love. That the only power that's possible, that makes that kind of love possible, is a love for what's been done for you in Christ. We love because we have been loved. And that's the main thing. Those are the two main themes of the letter. But there is another element here. There's another strategy. It's not used as often, but it is used with just as much power. He remind, Paul reminds them and us to view this life, what we're getting out of this life, what we seek in this life, what we demand from this life, 
in light of what God has promised to give us. Because God hasn't just promised that because of what Jesus has done in the past, we are not who we were. He's also promised to make us what we were always supposed to be, to give us bodies that will never die, in which we can enjoy all that he has offered to us forever to his glory, that that is what's coming for us. And Paul points his friends there to encourage them to give this life away to each other. Because there's nothing that holds us back from giving to each other, from forgiving each other, from, from freedom, uh, from self-obsession, than the sense that our clock is ticking and that this world is all that there is. Our sense that we have got to protect what's ours now because it's fragile. And because apart from it, we have nothing. What keeps us from giving ourselves to each other, from giving our resources, our time, our affections, is that we would be giving away the only thing that we have. Paul knows that the only way for them to love each other in in, in the way he wants them to is if they are more captured by the future God has promised them on the other side of the grave than they are captured by their affection for the things that this world can promise them. He knows their only hope is to be more taken up with what God has promised them than with the life they have envisioned for themselves. Now, time won't let me go to some of the examples of this. I especially love the way Paul builds this in chapter 7, where he's talking about marriage and singleness. If you weren't here for that message, it's online. I think it would really encourage you on this point. Paul there calls them to just be free from letting these circumstances, what you have or don't have, who you have or don't have, define what you're getting out of this life. He says, remain where you are with God. This present world is passing away. And God has built for us something that will never end. So live for that, not for what you can have here. This world is full of the good things that God has given to his children. Marriage is one of the chief among them. But it ultimately doesn't define a meaningful life. Because this life is just the beginning. It's the appetizer. It's the trailer for the show that hasn't started yet. And you can enjoy the show even if you don't get to taste the trailer. Paul calls them to, to live for what's coming. And chapter 15, which we've looked at in the last couple of weeks, is the best example of this. Go read that this afternoon and be encouraged by it. Paul builds this long argument about the resurrection, about how it is the key to to living in light of the future. And he concludes his long argument with verse 58 of chapter 15. What he says there is that, therefore, because Christ is risen and he's coming for you so that you can live forever, therefore, therefore, this one's worth reading together, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's wrapping up a letter in which he has called them to do work, hard work of making their community last. He knows that work means death to themselves. It means death to the game that everyone else in their city is playing. And he says, you can die that death because ultimately you will live in Christ. And if Christ is for you, if he's coming for you, then you can be steadfast and immovable, no matter what these circumstances throw at you. You can be steadfast and immovable, because nothing that you give away in this life is in vain, if you will live forever in Christ. That's how he encourages them. The metric, friends, here's here's the way to wrap it up. The metric we've got to use for weighing what we're getting out of this life 
can't be what we want and it can't be what others have. If it's what we want and if it's what others have, then we'll never be able to make community work because everyone else is going to be a threat or merely a resource to be exploited. But if the metric by which we weigh our lives and what we're getting out of this life is the future that God has promised us, then we are set free. Set free to love in a way that testifies of what Christ has offered us. A a love that shows the world it's true. That's the love that I'm praying for out of 1 Corinthians. That's what I think all of us are called to from this study. To pray that God will make real in us a love that just isn't natural because it is rooted in something that is not of this world. It's possible. His Spirit can do it. Let's pray together now that He will make it real.